Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. All right, we are back with Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast, talking about the fantastic album Off the Ground. Chris, your thoughts on Off the Ground? I don't know if I'd call it a fantastic album, but what I would say is it is the tip of a fantastic iceberg of material. There you go. We'll get into this later, but I think you can construct a fantasy version of those 20-odd tracks that may be superior to Flowers in the Dirt. Wow. As for what's on the actual album, it's hit or miss for me, and I found that when I made my fantasy list, we've we've uh, exchanged fantasy lists already. When yeah. I made my fantasy list, I found that there were more other off-the-ground tracks than actual off-the-ground tracks on my list. So I'm actually liking the excluded material more than than what's on the album. But it is a good album. I find it quite a good album, actually. I enjoy it. Yes, and I can't wait. We'll save that to the absolute end of the episode. We'll we'll do our playlists for everybody because you're right. I just couldn't believe how much material he recorded. And it's more of that Hog Hill thing. He's got his own studio in his backyard or wherever it is. Yeah, and he's going at it all the time, I guess. All the time. <laughs> Yeah, with this amazing band that he has put together by the time of this album. And so the people in that band, you have Paul, Linda, obviously, Hamish Stewart, who, what a voice, right? That guy. Oh, wow. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Robbie McIntosh, Paul Wicks Wickens, who I really love this guy. And then Blair Cunningham also shows up. You know, he has this sharp, sharp band. So this whole album is coming off the wake of the 1989-1990 world tour. This is where Paul records a, an album with a band for the first time since, was Back to the Egg, maybe? Mm-hmm. And you can just hear on this album that Paul's in good spirits. Those interviews that you and I found, I know you got a chance to listen to a couple of them. What did you think of those? Oh, I listened to all of them. Yeah, oh, and I did? saw. Oh, you did. Yeah, and I saw a few on YouTube as well. There was a, a Spanish interview in Barcelona that was around the time of Paul is live. Awesome, and a, a couple others. Like there was a Mexican interview as well. He was talking about how great Mexican audiences are, of course. <laughs> but but uh, classic, classic. I, I found that those were really informative interviews, and that he actually gave a lot of insight into how the record was made and into what his thought process was, especially the band idea that he wanted to get back to a back to the egg wings, you know, playing in the studio kind of thing. He had been doing the meticulous overdubbing for a good part of a decade at that point and wanted something more spontaneous. Strange that he didn't want that when Elvis offered it to him, <sighs> but, and we're going to probably come back to this a little later, but I went back to the 1988 studio demos with yes. Elvis and Paul and yes, I yes. just can't, I can't get over what a great album was brewing there. A really, really you know? good album. And very much a go in the studio and pound stuff out kind of mentality. Yeah. 
Yeah, Linda was saying that they sounded like the Hog Hill Beatles or whatever. And I think that just scared him in 88. Whereas I don't I guess. And I guess to further your point, Paul had spoken to the producer of this album, you know, Julian Mendelssohn, who we saw last on Press to Play, mm-hmm. that, you know, we'd go into the studio in the Beatles he's talking about, and we would record quick, and that would be it. We'd do a couple takes. That's what we did, and that's what we're going to see on this album and this episode today. And especially the idea with the Beatles that even when they got to the later stuff and they were doing a fair amount of overdubbing, they were still overdubbing on top of a solid band track, like a live-in-the-studio backing track. So Julian Mendelssohn, he's the producer of this album. He is an Australian record producer, audio engineer, and mixer. He's been active since about 1974. He's worked with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Liza Minnelli, the Pet Shop Boys, and Elton John, amongst you know many others. And he's still in Australia. And Julian and Paul hooked up on the Press to Play sessions. And he shows up here on these sessions, ready to capture McCartney's and his band's live sound. Paul's doing a lot of stuff in this time. You have the album Tripping the Live Fantastic, which is a live compilation of the Flowers in the Dirt tour. You know, we have a live compilation album that Paul liked a lot, and that probably is part of what spun him into thinking, hey, we don't have to do the boring computer music that he talks about that is Flowers <laughs> in the Dirt. Although he did some, but, but I guess yeah, it wasn't that, boring. He, but yeah, the first track on this album... Yeah is computer music. It doesn't sound that computery. It's no. a bit quantized sounding, but it it's rather naturalistic with the instrument sound. Yes. Do you think we should take this time to dive right in? Let's dive right in. All right. Track one off of Off the Ground, the title track, Off the Ground. <laughs> Strong way to start the album. I like it a lot. I love this song. I think it's a great, great song. Yeah, super catchy tune. Computer production or not, I like it quite a lot. It's this isn't the kind of computer production we were complaining about on Motor of Love. This no. is, you know, this is quite good. This got some good words. There's this line that I especially like. I'm really crazy about this. Yeah. Though it takes a lot of power to make a big tree grow. It doesn't need a pot of knowledge, for a seed knows what a seed must know. Great lyric. That is some wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Wow, I, I actually hadn't even 
thought of that because I'm so preoccupied with how good the song is and the production <laughs> and the hooks and all of that. It's a good song. It's a bit simple, but it's the kind of simple that McCartney can uniquely pull off, you know? Yeah. And I find it very interesting. So there's a quote from Wix. He says, you should have heard the demo. It's nothing like the album version. I thought, how am I going to do this? And he wanted to build it entirely on the computer. We put some drum loops in and the feel changed totally. We added some of Robbie's guitar and it worked out brilliantly. Got it done in a day. What do you think that sound sounds like the, the demo of this song? Just a jangly acoustic thing? I would imagine. I mean, it's sort of underneath it all is a bit of a folk song, isn't it? It is. It's a big song. It's like, it's, I think the chorus is in G. It's that big old acoustic guitar song. So, But, you know, Paul mentions that he also went in the studio and cranked up one of the amplifiers. It was one of his, one of his first overdubs on that. And so they wanted a rock sound. You know, yes. he wanted some live guitars and crunchy distortion and stuff. If it's computery, it's like XTC computery where... It's not particularly synthesizer-y or anything. No, know? no, no. It's just, it's actually, I guess it's 90s production, not 80s production, but it's 90s production that's aged very well. Well, I'm thinking of an album by XTC right now, uh, Apple Venus Volume 2. Yes. Wasp Star, mm-hmm. which has a bunch of like guitar plugins and sounds such as gorgeous. It sounds like real, like solid rock and roll, but a lot of it is computer, but... Yeah, great one. So off the ground, this thing was meant to be a single off the record, and it was a single. It actually knocked Biker Like an Icon, which (laughs) we finally get to talk about Biker Like an Icon in a little bit. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, I just find it so so fascinating. This is another one of those songs that it was a last-minute edition, and it's the name of the album, and I don't know which McCartney daughter said it to Paul, but she's like, what'd you guys do in the studio today? Oh, we work on a song called Off the Ground. That'd make a good album title. You know, one of those old McCartney stories. That McCartney story. There's your album title, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's that's going to be on the album, you know. How many times have I heard variations on that story? <laughs> yeah. He guys is constantly <laughs> writing a press release for the next thing <laughs> he's doing. So, yeah. So, the video to this one, which was shot by ILM, that's a pretty cool video. It, it has that little bit. That we'll get to on the, what the complete works or whatever it is that soggy noodle little soggy thing, noodle yeah, mm-hmm. which I don't even know why people are saying that's a song. That's obviously just a thing that they added to the video, and it's <laughs> noodle rhymes with doodle. I think it's pretty clear what's going on there, but yeah. So this single, which um, you know, it did not do very well. It was released as a seven inch with cosmically conscious as the b-side and then there was a big old cd single with cosmically conscious style style sweet sweet memories and soggy noodle what a nice little cd single to have if you can find it i've got it oh you have it i didn't know that i have almost all these singles from off the ground actually yeah i prefer these versions of the in terms of mastering these versions of the songs um of the you know the non non album tracks. Oh really? Interesting. I have this Japanese EMI of the Off the Ground Complete Works. And yeah, it just doesn't sound quite as good to me as these CD singles. So yeah, so Off the Ground, this thing hit number twenty seven on the AC charts. It didn't do much more than that because this is the 
final single off the record, features a photo of Paul from 1977 on the that single artwork. Oh, is that when that's from? Yeah, he's in a like a gray overcoat covering up part of his face. Yes, and so I just spoke about this to the fine people at the Third Men podcast. We were talking about this sort of thing where Paul is always kind of covering covering himself up in promo photos. He's hiding himself. And there mm. it is right there, same day. So, interesting. This is a great song, and there are a couple different mixes of it. My favorite version is the Bob Clear Mountain version. I liked that one too. It's it's really nice and clean, but the album version is just as good, I'd say. Yeah, the the Clear Mountain is the vocals are a little clearer, a little less reverb on the vocals, and it's a little punchier sounding somehow, a little less soupy. Yeah, there's also a remix by Keith Cohen that starts with a fade-in of the chorus, which is, you know, it's okay. But we are the complete Paul McCartney podcast after all, so we should mention it. Just a solid opening track, and like I said, the computer aspect of it does not contrast, for me, production sound-wise with the rest of the record. So we will change it up into track two, Looking for Changes. I'll tell you what, uh, I saw a photo in one of these uh, animal rights magazines, actually, I think it was called Animal's Agenda, and um, there was a picture there with a cat, uh, and it had had, like, the top of his head taken off or, like, opened up or something, and the scientists had put a little machine in there, and the look on the cat's face was like saying, get this thing 
out of my head, man. You know, anybody out there looking, do something. And uh, so I just kind of had to respond, you know. I just feel strongly about that kind of thing, you know. You imagine the look of that cat, you know. They, they say you know, some people are lucky. Well, that cat wasn't. He just got bad luck one day, and they just opened up this poor sucker's brain and stuck this little machine in, you know. So I feel strongly about that. So that was it. That's I, I ended up writing a song about it called Looking for Changes. You know, uh, you seem to be, and maybe I'm mi misinterpreting this, but you seem to be saying there's something wrong with the indiscriminate torture and mutilation of animals, e even for the scientific purpose of a brand of eyeshadow that doesn't smear as much. Now, certainly for something that important, Paul. <laughs> well, you know, you, you put your finger on it. You know, it's like, that's what I'm saying. You know, if it's a, a life-threatening uh, disease and, the, and, the, and people feel they've got to experiment on animals, I'm not too keen on that. But, you know, if it was one of my kids who was going to be saved by that, I think in that case, you know, I'd, I, I would... Uh, listen you know and, right. and 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 be very sad for the animal but but i would choose my kid over an animal that's that's me but when it's things like cosmetics and teaching monkeys to smoke yeah. and stuff like that i mean we don't need to know that we all know smoking causes cancer i mean yeah. you know big deal yeah well i'll tell you you have taken a very very difficult subject uh to even talk about and written mm. a great song and let's let's listen to it now it's called looking for changes hmm what do you think of this one? Well, you know, this is one of those ones when I'd first heard the record, I just sort of heard it once and then skipped it because I didn't love the lyrics. I think the music's really good. It's kind of a rock tune from my point of view. I, I guess it succeeds okay on those terms. I think the lyrics are, it's a noble attempt. And I think in a little while, we're going to see slightly more successful such noble attempts. But it's a noble attempt to deal with his animal rights concerns at the time. He mentions, you know, the first line is, I saw a cat with a machine in his brain. Yeah. And he's got that photo of that cat in the liner notes. Yes. And it's grisly. Yeah, it's pretty rough to look at. Mm -hmm. Having seen that picture and heard him talk about this, um, you know, maybe I'm a little more sympathetic with what the song's trying to say. It, it has this thing that you have to be careful of when you're advocating for animal welfare and animal rights. I know a little bit about this because I'm, I've done some animal research in my work in the past. Uh, you have to be careful that you don't get vengeful. Yeah. Paul's flirting with that a little bit here. I'd like to see him take that machine and stick it in his own brain. Okay, I get the rage, but, you know, it's not a good tack. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ex-Beatles suggest scientists implant machine in brain. Yeah, it's a bit harsh. But it's an, it's an all right song. I like the chorus musically more than the verse. Yeah. The chorus is, is big and bright. It's, it's um, all of the music on this album and its B-sides or second album, as you and I call it sometimes. It, all the music's great. The worst I can say is that some of the rock songs are just rock songs. Right. Right? And that's not such a bad thing. We should mention at this point, so Paul employed a poet, Adrian Mitchell, to help with the lyrics. And so I just find this so fascinating. So he uses the word bastard in this song. And mm. then, you know, he uses the F word in a track we'll talk about in a little bit. And they're in all the promotional materials, they're talking about this stuff like it is just 
so taboo and so controversial <laughs> to use the yeah. word bastard in a song about animal rights. Crazy. I guess it's a departure for Paul. There is a quote I found in this. It may not necessarily be about this song, but it kind of sets us up for the whole album ahead. This is Paul McCartney. He says, I think it's change or die time for this planet. Pretty harsh quote, but this is his activism coming across you know he he's got a lot of problems and he has a platform and you know you mentioned the the cat with the machine in his brain the photo that he found it was either the animal's voice or the animal's agenda some some magazine and um, he played some of this footage before some of these live shows he actually showed the footage instead of having an opening act yeah can you That's brave. I'm really surprised he did that. I will always be hoping, hoping. You will always be holding, holding my heart in your hand. I will understand. I will understand someday, one day. then we get the beautiful hope of deliverance nice little latin tinged arrangement i don't i wouldn't say it's a latin tinged song but a latin tinged arrangement with the percussion and the spanish guitar he mentions that he wrote this one up in the attic with a 12 string and got this chimey sound with a capo mm-hmm. which he pronounces capo it turns out huh and uh, is wow. that a british thing it's a, anyway. I'm a rock star and I have a billion dollars <laughs> and I can do whatever I want thing, I think. Anyway, it's a 12 string with a capo and he's fooling around with chords he likes and hits upon the deliverance idea. And he sees it as sort of a quasi spiritual message of change and hope for those times, meaning the early 90s. Yeah, I've got a quote. It's a, he says, that very jingly sound reminded me of cathedrals and Christmas. So that led me into the field of hope of deliverance and then i added about the darkness that surrounds us so yeah he wrote it in two hours and this is a song that sold four million copies and was was a pretty big hit (laughs) this is a record that didn't end up sounding much like cathedrals or christmas no (laughs) but but that's a fine place to start yeah it sold quite well worldwide i guess it didn't do so well in the u.s right it did not fare well on the billboard hot 100 peaking only at number 83 but did better in the Billboard Adult Contemporary or AC chart, which had hit nine, top 10 there. You know, it apparently, according to Paul, did really well in Germany. Mm-hmm. He said it was mm-hmm. shockingly big hit in Germany. Number three, yeah. Yeah, and he failed to mention the obvious reason for that, which is that this is around the time of the end of the Cold War. Yes, of course. You know? There's a celebratory mood in Germany at the time, and it makes sense that this song would connect with people. Yeah, it hit, went to number one on the European top 20 even. So this this really resonated over on the other side of the Atlantic.
he's actually in the last, I'd say, five to ten years been playing this on tour again. I know we have talked recently, like, where are all of these songs on tour? Here's one of them. You, you, you might hear Paul play this song the next time you go see him, which would be pretty cool. Now, I have to ask you, have you heard Paul McCartney's Deliverance? Yes, I have. That I have heard. <laughs> I gave it a listen this morning, actually. What is that exactly? I've got this 12-inch that has a, a long track called Deliverance on one side and a sort of shorter version of the same thing plus Hope of Deliverance on the other. It's the most stereotypical sort of early 90s dance music. It has the da, 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 da. It's got that thing going on. I thought of it as I was listening to it as Hang Glide the sequel, sort of. Hang Glide the sequel. So all of the work that we've set up in Hope of Deliverance, that's the Deliverance, a 90s dance track. where We can all just take some good ecstasy <laughs> and kind of feel mellow, man. All right. So yeah, so this came out, it was a seven-inch single with Long Leather Coat as the B-side, which is a co-write with Linda. Same for the audio cassette version. And then the CD maxi single has songs Big Boys Bickering and Kicked Around No More in addition to Long Leather Coat. That's a nice clutch of songs right there. You know, on a personal note, I always like to point out whether I heard things on the radio at the time. And I did hear Hope of Deliverance on the radio at oh, the time. Oh, you did? Yeah. But I want to point out that this was the first Paul McCartney album that I was completely checked out on. I did not buy this album until 1997. Okay. Wow. In fact, it was hearing things like I Can't Imagine and Kicked Around No More that I started thinking, wow, there must be some good stuff from this period. I better check out this album after all. But Hope of Deliverance was on the radio, but was not enough to get me to buy the album. I was just checked out. I was thinking about other things. I think that I heard this album around the same time because this that would have been right around when I was getting into Paul. And I remember this will date me a little bit. So there... There's this mall in Chicago called the Randhurst Mall. And there on the second floor, there was this like, it was like Recycle or something. I can't remember the name of the store, but it was like a, it was like a thrift store, but like a corporatized thrift store. And there was mm. a CD section there. And I remember I had heard Flaming Pie and I was, I was looking for albums and there were like 10 copies of Off the Ground <laughs> at this store. I remember buying one and just that impression i always thought like maybe this is not a good paul mccartney album it's a good album it's got great singles on it. it's it got good production and it took me spinning it a few times to kind of shake off this 
persuasive argument of like, no, this isn't good because nobody's buying it. Yeah. The next track on the album, Elvis Costello. So we're not done with Elvis just yet. Nope. Hang on, people. (laughs) Hold on. Hold your horses. Mistress and Maid. What do you think of Mistress and Maid? I love Mistress and Maid. Oh, I love the song. Yeah. I I like the original demo quite a lot. I hear a lot of potential there. And and then by the time you get to this, it's, uh, to me, all the emotion is lost now. Mm Mm-hmm. I get the idea that he's with this cool band and they're in the studio and they're, you know, they're letting it all hang out. But this is just a little too loose and relaxed for a song this serious. Right. With a narrative arc like this one has, too. There's a big payoff at the end of this song where the, the central character decides to leave this guy finally. You know? Yeah. Like there's even another song on this album where he does the same thing to the lovers that never were. It's just and kind it's, of. And it's worse. It's a much worse case. Yeah. yeah he had nailed it. A couple years before, but he knew he wanted to bring the song out. And for whatever reason, just this watered down version. It's too bad, but I like the song a lot. Well, yeah, I like it a lot. It's based on or was inspired by a painting by Vermeer called The Love Letter. It's The Love Letter shows a mistress and her maid. So it it doesn't really indicate the plot of this song. It's just kind of suggestive. And Paul liked Vermeer a lot. So it's worth looking. Maybe we can uh, post a link to that on the website so yeah. people can just have a glance. And I th- I think this is a really compelling song. I'll always prefer the home demo with Elvis and Paul singing it. But I still think it's a great song, and I can still tell it's a great song through this overly relaxed production and performance here. But it this album track just doesn't convey the intensity of the song. And Paul saw that painting which he claims, at least from what I've heard, that it's one of his favorites. And he was just mm. knocked out by it. And he liked the title Mistress and Maid, but originally it was meant to be something a bit saucier, something more sexual. And it ended up, I mean, Elvis Costello, Elvis Costello-ified it and turned mm-hmm. it into something a bit more painful. Guess what? A dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> Yeah. He said, come in, my dear, you're looking tired tonight. Your bath is strong, let me loosen your tie and fix you your usual drink. 
settles back and takes a magazine, picks off his shoes as he studies the form of every appealing soubrette. March 23rd, 1995, Paul and Elvis did a live version of this at St. James Place. And that's pretty good, too. So it's they're singing it a bit low. Yeah. He only made in the dark in their bed. She wants to shout at the back of his head. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm afraid Look what it's come to now I'm just your mistress and Somebody on Facebook On the Take It Away Facebook page Which, go check that out If you want in on conversation, folks There's a lot happening Somebody sent Elvis Costello's book That he released a couple years ago They're like, read chapter I think it was 29 And Oh I read through it and it and it talks about Paul and Elvis's relationship and I guess Paul and Elvis were sitting down to record that day is done and Paul's like he had pulled up some modern 80s synthesizer record at the time some like syrupy dance synth Depeche Mode thing or something along those lines and Elvis had to leave the studio to take a walk so he oh, wouldn't wow. tell Paul off and then wow. he was like, by the time I got back, we had moved on to something else and it, it became a piano track again, something along those lines. <laughs> and and he was so relieved that when he heard the album version, there was that big brass band on it that we had talked about, the factory bands. And mm-hmm. Elvis had said, that's exactly what I wanted it to be, but they never had the conversation about it. So oh, I see. These guys may have been able to write songs together, but it sounds like they didn't really have good conversation. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, watching the interaction on the archive <laughs> documentaries. Yes. yes. I mean, it's yes. not a, a lovey-dovey interaction. Elvis is sort of all business, and Paul is, well, you mentioned it last time, but all Paul is business. just fooling around, and Elvis, Elvis is like giving the count off before anyone else is even ready. Like, guys... Can we play? Yeah. One, two, <laughs> you know? Paul, just right into the song. And Paul is like doing one hand on a synth, one hand <laughs> in are, the air. There are some moments, though, where they really do, at least while singing, be, they seem to be having a great time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I think they had a fine time making the record. Artists, man. Artists fight. Artists are emotional people. It's all good. It's allowed. They're So there's a 15-piece orchestra on this track, which is done by Carl Davis, and that's the gentleman Paul worked with on the Liverpool Oratorio that we mentioned previously. So he's still kicking around. And Stephen Wick, who played the tuba on this one, he said, Paul McCartney, he had a boundless energy, but his constructions were confusing. (laughs) Paul had said, I wanted a little bit ragtime, but with a Baroque feel. Okay. I can kind of hear that. Yeah. That's sunshine pop. That's Baroque pop. Yeah. That's what he's describing. Yeah. (laughs) That's Harper's Bazaar. Right. Well, that reminds me of Jimi Hendrix. Someone asked him what he wanted the guitar to sound like, and he said, water. The engineer said, what kind of water? And he said, blue water. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's amazing. Thanks, man. But um, before we leave Elvis, we played Veronica last time. We didn't really talk about Veronica. And I, it, it's actually a song that I happen to adore and have real yeah. sentimental feelings I got about. A, so I, I, I got a few comments about that, too, let me tell you. First of all, we have a really cool demo of Veronica with just Elvis. Is it all in that pretty little head of yours? What goes on in that place in the dark? Well, I used to know a girl, and I could have sworn that her name was Veronica. Well, she used to have a carefree mind of her own, with a delicate look in her eye. These days, I'm afraid she's not even sure if her name is Veronica. Do you suppose that way? And listening to this demo, I think you can tell it's an Elvis song. Just to review from last time, these guys started their partnership with a kind of, well, I'll help you finish a song, you help me finish a song. Veronica was what Elvis brought to that, and you can hear that it's predominantly Elvis's song. Not entirely sure what Paul added to it, but it's a wonderful song about Elvis's grandmother and her deteriorating mental state in her old age. And it's very touching, and it's very harmonically sophisticated. It has this wonderful bridge on the Empress of India section Mm -hmm. where she's just wandering around in her memories, you know? And he's contrasting that with her current situation, apparently in a resting home where no one gives a crap about her, really. Yeah. And one other thing I wanted to mention about Veronica that's really worth looking up, and I think we should play a little bit of it here, is that it has the strangest music video of the 80s. Okay. In my opinion. (laughs) All right. Elvis is sitting there singing along with the record. Yes. Quietly and not even that elegantly, just kind of singing and humming along with the record as it goes by and kind of acting a bit with his face. And it's a really kind of arresting sound. You've yeah, it's, never it's cool. heard that. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. It is very odd, but it's yeah. cool. Well, she used to have a carefree mind of her own and a delicate look in her eyes. These days I'm afraid she's not even sure if her name is Yeah, I mean, this song was Costello's highest charting top 40 hit in the U.S. It hit number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the Hot Modern Rock chart, number 10 on the mainstream rock charts. This was a big hit for Elvis. And having had Every Day I Write the Book and this song, not that far apart. This This is big business for Elvis. It's good stuff. Well, and this is right after King of America and Blood and Chocolate both bombed sales wise i can't believe that those are such good albums it's just so hard they, to believe they were bombs yeah you don't want to hear the blue chair like that's like the people want to hear veronica not elvis not not battered old bird no, i was just gonna say that's what i was gonna say i was gonna say that one 
So we'll touch on Elvis a little more when we get back to uh, later in the album. But yeah, we wanted to mention Veronica. Also, I don't think we ever explicitly pointed out that Paul plays bass on This Town on Spike. Yes, the uh, the Rickenbacker bass guitar, whereas on Veronica, it's the Hoffner. Specifically started the show with that so you could hear Paul's bass playing on that, which is really slick on This Town. Last night you helped me through Took me to the lover's zone I saw their images Projected on a wall of stone I stood inside the Egyptian temples I looked into eternal gardens Lay on the shores of distant islands So track five, we're almost done with the A-side to Off the Ground. I owe it all to you. So this is a song that I didn't really love until I was researching for the podcast because I just didn't understand the lyrics. Paul explains it if you dig into the interviews. He says, I'd been to a place in the south of France. The kids took us there for Linda's birthday. I drove past this sign which said, Cathedre de image, you know, cathedral of images. It turned out to be this huge place carved out of the rock. And they have dozens of projectors and they throw images on the walls. Suddenly, it's an Egyptian temple. The next thing, it's, a, it's stained glass and so on. It's a trip. <laughs> Paul actually says that. So that explains the whole song. I had just never understood what this thing was about. I'm like, what is he talking about? I'm not crazy about the song. I think it's a little fluffy. It's not a bad one, but it it didn't make my fantasy cut. I would say that the lyrics, although you just did a good job conveying his idea, I'm not sure it's a great idea. Yes. It just kind of arbitrarily wanders over into I owe it all to you. And I guess he's saying that our marriage, our love is, is, is wondrous. I guess that's what he's saying. It's as wondrous as these things. And if it weren't for you, that's, uh, it's a little forced. Okay, so let I will say this then. I like the song Press more than I like this song, which by the way, I keep getting emails from people. <laughs> I hate you. Why do you hate press? We explained why we hate press. All we kinds have to of go pain. over that again. <laughs> I digress. Like, I think press is a better song than this one, folks. Just listen to what I say there. So, but I, the music is pretty good. But it yeah, is. like, you make me happy? Come on, man. You could have written a better <laughs> lyric than that. <laughs> it's true. Late last night, we were right into some exotic scene. Everywhere, images appearing on a giant screen. I stood inside a glass cathedral. Like a diamond in the light. 
Well, the other issue I have with this record is Old Man Macca voice. Yeah, okay. Old Man Macca makes a few appearances on here. Most of the songs in this entire batch, he sounds good. He sounds like Flowers in the Dirt, Paul. Yeah. But we're getting a few of these rougher sounding vocals, and this is one of them where he seems to be straining a bit, and his just doesn't seem to have the agility in his voice in the verses. So. So yeah, so everybody, so Chris and I, we've been talking about this much longer than the podcast has been on, but we agree that there's there's a point we're trying to identify exactly when it appears. Maybe this is when it appears where Paul does not sound like the young man from the 60s or the 70s where almost everything he sings sounds like magic, where there's this almost burnt out quality to his voice. If you've heard or seen interviews of him recently, he's like, I will sing a whole thir- three hour show and I won't take a one sip of water. And like everybody's begging him, like his sound guy. That please. sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, please, please, Paul, have some water. And his his whole explanation is like, well, Elvis never had water. Why do I need water? Well, Elvis <laughs> had a very different voice and sang in a very different range. Also, how about Elvis is dead? How about that? Well, he didn't make Paul- it. Well, let's just give credit where it's due. The man sings all his songs in the original keys. I can't even sing these songs at the age I'm at in the original keys. So now, finally, we get to talk about track six, Biker Like an Icon. I like a Leica. I like a Leica. I like a Nikon. Uh, Yeah, and Paul says, I like confusing titles, which isn't wrong. You know, if you want somebody to pay attention to what you're working on or what you're doing, you know, you're going to want to create a little controversy or create something difficult to read. But this one just, this does not scan to me at all. What the hell happened here? This sounds like what it is, which is sort of cheap wordplay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I, you know, good wordplay is you, you have an idea, and then you start thinking of cool puns to sort of, you know, punch up that idea. This is he had a pun and, and devised a, a kind of plot around the pun. I don't know if that's how you should do it. So we've gotten a little heat on... Rose and Paul about bad rhymes or bad lyrics. How about these rhyme? This rhyme scheme: biker, liker, met her, let her. <laughs> he mm-hmm. like <laughs> what? I'll take biker and like her. That's not bad. But not met her and let her. That's pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing the promotional 
video for this, whatever, I, I couldn't even tell you the title of it, to be honest, because like I said at the top, all of this stuff blends together in my mind. It's like all of the same live album, which cool. Like he, I know he sold records and he was having a good time, but it's like you hear like a Beatles song, like Can't Buy Me Love. And then a couple songs later, you hear something like Biker Like an Icon. And you're like, how, how is this the same guy? How can this possibly be the same person? Well, I guess we agree we're not buying the lyrics. What do you think about it musically? You know, it's so similar to that song Vanilla Sky that he does mm, years is, later. It? I think musically it's okay. How about the lyric about precious water dripping away too? There's something really sinister about that. There's something really dark about this tune. It's What does that refer to, precious water dripping away? From what I understand, he's saying the water of time, like time oh. is dripping away. And That's a bit heavy in a biker it's, song. It's heavy. This one's a heavy song. And I think this is a, just another case where a song that's good enough to have been a B-side just made it onto an album, uh, onto its A-side. I don't think it's any more or less complicated than that. in the neighborhood what do you think of this one so we flipped over the vinyl if for somehow you have an off the ground vinyl I, I i dig the chords in this song yeah it's got chords i like chords i get the feeling i'm not supposed to like this song because the lyrics are <laughs> what do you mean what well, do you mean by that because the lyrics are a bit trite i guess the, you mean the feeling in the air something was definitely there and best thing I ever saw was a man who loved his wife and this kind of platitudinous stuff. But musically, I really dig this one. This has got good chords, like you said. It matters a lot and a really good tune and a really good feel. Great feel, yeah. Which was uh, one of the first ones they recorded, right? And didn't expect it to be the take. Wait, so wait, you're saying that you've never been at the center of a love vibration before? I, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be. <laughs> but this is a song, though, about about civic harmony, really. And he's using the neighborhood as just a, you know, just a symbol. Some people have talked about it as if it were this sinister like, callback to some myth of the 50s 
suburbia or something. I, I don't see that. I just see it as like we have a neighborhood here. You know, maybe we get together for a barbecue and yeah. we help each other out. And it's just a symbol for how civic life could be more cooperative. But yeah, I'm down with this one. And I, I like I said, I really enjoy the vibe in the instrumental performance, especially. Good vocal on this, too. Good commanding Paul vocal. Very, very flexible sounding and improvising a lot, damping a lot. Really good. Last thing on Peace in the Neighborhood. So, Biker Like an Icon and Peace in the Neighborhood, these were the first tracks to be recorded for these sessions. And they kind of set the tone for the rest of the material to come. Golden Earth Girl. Hmm. Yeah. It's musically, this is a bit of a Bacharach kind of thing. It has this awkward sort of halting melody that will stop and just churn on a chord for a moment. Mm-hmm. And that's such a Bacharach affectation. I just can't help but hear it that way. It's a good song. Well, uh, musically, it's a really good song. I love the tune. I like the, I guess I like the arrangement okay. I have a particular fondness for the song, despite the lyrics. I think this lives in the, I just learned this word, so I'm going to use it. This lives in like the heuristic of, okay, which means shortcut. It means nothing more than shortcut. Single pigeon mm-hmm. or... Fool on the Hill, a little Fool bit. on the Hill. Do you know how many Paul McCartney songs we've listened to, folks? What's the song on At the Speed of Sound, the last track? Oh, Warm and Beautiful. Warm and yeah, Beautiful. it's a lot like Warm and Beautiful. Good call. This bare piano, beautiful melody. Maybe some of the words aren't great. It's the Warm and Beautiful heuristic is what I'll call it. Mm-hmm. The line about in eggshell seas, which always kind of irked me a bit it's actually a play on the words and that means in the highest degree yeah but you know what turning 
in excelsis into in eggshellsies, that's a lot like turning excellent into egg salad. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of cheap, you know? <laughs> or Laika like Baika, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this is some of the poet's injection into this record, which, by the way, we know, I don't think you ever hear from Adrian Mitchell again unless maybe he was involved in that Blackbird poem book. Girl is one that I like the music so much that I do not skip the song, and I don't let the lyrics wreck it for me. I guess I could forgive someone for being cool with the lyrics, so yeah, it's it's not a dud. Now, as with I owe it all to you, major old man McAvoy on this, and that kind of messes up the record for me a little bit. Yeah, they could have done another take, or he could have come come back another day. Absolutely, but. He was working fast, and and from what I'm starting to learn, especially in the 80s and 90s on Paul, he liked just moving quick. Let's do a song in a day or two. Is that really true, though? Because I hear these stories about Paul getting high and playing bass all afternoon. Is that true? That's am- I didn't know. <laughs> I, I, I heard that, I think, during... It was either the flower sessions or the press-to-play sessions. He'd come in in the morning and work for a while. Then at lunch, he'd go up and get high and come down and get lost trying to do a bass part. I remember Denny, Denny talked about in one of those interviews, not our interview, but in the Blackbird interview, he talked about the fact that Paul became really indecisive when he was really high and would just sit there and try things all day. So I don't know. I guess it depends on his mood. That's kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah. Gordon Hunt played oboe on the track and he had a quick quote about Paul. He didn't have that sort of professional language, but he was always charming. He got a very clear idea about the solo, how it should be phrased, how it should be sounding, and I was very impressed by that. That seems pretty par for the course, right? Well, again, there's contradiction there, too. Sometimes we hear from people who say that Paul pretty much sang the part to them, and then we hear from, you know, the the story about the listen to what the man said sax solo, where the guy didn't even know he was recording a solo, and, (laughs) you know... So the next track on this album, Elvis is back again for the beautiful song, The Lovers That Never Were. Now, we were very generous with playing this song on the last episode in its original demo version. Rather than play that again, I would like to play the 1988 studio demo. Yes. Because that, like the original home demo, has quite a, quite a sweet lead vocal, like a really intense passionate i think elvis said it's like he's singing a ballad the way he would have sung i'm down right yep and the studio demo still has that and the key still seems to be up about a whole step from where we end up on off the ground mm-hmm. i have always needed some 
I think that studio demo is, you know, it doesn't have the magic of the home demo, but if things had gone in the direction of that 1988 studio demo, we'd have an amazing record of the lovers that never were. This version, well, what do you think? I mean, that's a great question. I have a big problem with the 4-4 time against the 3-4 or the... It's the two against three, yeah, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was I want to demonstrate it to the listeners to give them an idea. The first two versions are in this very flowing triple time. So we have one, two, three, two, two, three, one, two type of thing. For as long as the sun shines in somebody's eyes, I'll believe in you, baby. The thing that Ryan and I are complaining about here, and we'll explain why, it goes like this. So I'm going to tap out the three on my chest, and I'm going to sing the two. Bum, 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 bum. And that's what the bass drum is doing for a lot of this song. Now, you can probably hear from that little demonstration I just did that it's all a bit mechanical and kind of jagged sounding. It really undermines the 6-8 triple time flow of this song that I consider essential to the song. So it's it, to me this is a huge misstep. Get Pete Thomas on the drums and play a bass part and just release the demo. Well, they did, right? <laughs> they did release but that, but that's it. So com- just complete the demo because there's that 93 version where, I forget, it was Lynn John or somebody. They, Jeff, Jeff Emmerich. Jeff Emmerich added some, some yeah. percussion with some reverb effects and cleaned up the mix. Yeah. It, this yeah. has obviously been on their minds. But look, it's the same problem that I had with Mistress and Maid insofar as it's sort of it's sort of too casual and uh, professional sounding for the intensity of the song. This is a dark song, you know? This record is just too slick for the song. It's still a great song. It's not a terrible record. It, we're mainly just comparing it to these two earlier versions that we just happen to find totally superior, you know? If 
So my progression on the song was I heard this version and then I heard the demo, uh, the, the the cassette tape version, not the 88. So it just kept getting better for me. I was like, there's another version? Wow. Well, this is cool. Yeah. You know, I always refer to those, or at least I did the last time we spoke to those 88 demos. It's like, it's an alternate universe. Yeah. It's like, wow, this, wait, this yeah. exists? <laughs> they went in the studio? What? This happened. Yeah, there's a little so, nine-song Elvis and Paul album sitting on the EMI Archive edition of Flowers, for those who haven't checked it out yet. Go buy that, check it out. For as long as the trees throw down blossoms and leaves, I know there will be a parade of unpainted dreams. That is a that's yeah. Oh, and plus. all of the clocks have run down. Times at an end. Oof. This is intense. Wow. This is heavy duty. brings us to one of ryan's faves oh i love this song and <laughs> this is that stuff that gets me in trouble on the internet where people are going to come after me for liking get out of my way more than press or something but i do <laughs> i do love track 10 get out of my way a lot i don't suppose you would share the story of why you like it so much i mean i'll i'll share the cleanest g- most g-rated version of the story basically in college I had I had played some show in some band I was in that doesn't exist anymore, and there was this girl I met my in my freshman year, and she didn't pay any attention to me until we we started winning that show, which for whatever maybe that should have been a cautionary tale. <laughs> Your first group, but that's neither here neither here nor there. So we we won, and all of a sudden she's interested, but I had to get all this gear. All the way across town. I, it was like 20, 30 minutes away. And I just remember her saying like, should we meet up tonight? Like, let's go out. I was like, yes. <laughs> and I just drove away with all the gear and I dropped it off and I'm driving back. And I just had that song on, you know, get out of my way, get out of my life. You know, I got a full gas tank. 
I got a f- fine woman waiting for me, and I just I just have a lot of positive associations <laughs> with that. That's cool. If I had that story, I would like the song too, man. It's just a rock song. For you know how I am about these rock songs. And Paul has a quote about that. He says it's an attempt at writing a straightforward rock and roll song. A lot of people will tell you that they're often the hardest songs to write, even though they sound very simple. To get them to sound authentic is difficult. I think the only thing that pulls away the that horns? authenticity is is the production style of of yeah of, of the horns or the record or it's, it's too slick to be yeah, a straight rock and roll song. Yeah, it's a little bit smarter song. musically than your average one four five rock and roll song too. So it's another one of those deceptively simple McCartney rock and roll tunes. It does have some nice changes. It reminds me a little bit of Move Over Busker, hmm. but, but way better. Way better than Move Over Busker? I'm, look, am I saying this is even top 50 McCartney songs for me? Absolutely not. I just, if we're talking about this album, I'm going to talk about how much I like this song particular. He Look, he's going to go play. He has been playing. He was just on a world tour. So he's writing songs that he can play live. There is something to say for the fact that he doesn't play this one anymore. I don't think it's... I would rather hear Get Back or any of those style of songs over this one. It's got that guitar solo from Robbie McIntosh on it where he did... It was like the first take and they said, nah, leave the original. The horn arrangement's pretty rad by the Midnight Horns. But isn't that one of the things that makes it less of a straight rocker? But like the lovers that never were, we have a waltz that's in four against four. You know, you have, I think there's a reason why these tracks are near the end of the album as opposed to opening up the album. Open up your heart if you want to set me free. Full of love, your love. Sailing on a wide dark open sea Sailing on a wide dark open sea Lighten up my heart Leave it to the evening breeze Give me love, your love So next track, Wine Dark Open Sea, track Hmm. 11. Well, it's a nice title. It is a nice title. Hamish has a quote on the song where he says, I would have added more to it, but it's a case of magic's in there and you've got to leave it alone. And this one's also included on Pure McCartney. I'd mentioned that before. This one's actually on his greatest of the greatest. I I think it's really a bland, like kind of 80s style love song well i'm i'm with you on this one it's too long too it's was five minutes plus five twenty eight something like that our romance is like being uh, on a journey in the ocean in a beautiful ocean which is actually a bit like i owe it all to you too similar idea 
it's fine. It's a straight ahead ballad. There's nothing quirky about it other than wine dark. That's kind of cool that he uses wine dark. But beyond that, it's not quirky or innovative in any way. It's perfectly serviceable as a McCartney ballad. So I just looked this up because I'm trying to, because I think Wine Dark Sea, you're right, it is the best part of the song. It's an amazing title. And it's from Homer. And it's an epithet of uncertain meaning. Well, the literal translation, it could mean wine faced hmm. sea or wine faced sea. He, he probably heard the phrase when he was on that vacation <laughs> where he saw the cathedrals or whatever, and he heard the phrase. I know this is surprising, but I don't have much of an opinion on this song at all. I I always skip it, and then my biggest point on it, I was, I was just shocked that it was on pure McCartney. He does that, though. He threw Sea Moon on all the best, you know? Oh, he'll, but I, he'll do stuff like that. I do love Sea Moon, though. Yeah, but you have to agree Sea Moon's pretty off the wall to have on a, <laughs> on a yeah. to have on an all the best, you know? All the best. Yeah, I like Sea Moon. Of course sea I like Sea Moon. Well, speaking of Sea Moon, cross out one O from that and you get our last title. <laughs> that was quite a segue. <laughs> That's what you get on this show, folks. And you know what? I had the same thought. Sea <laughs> <laughs> uh, Moon, people. Sea Moon. Yeah, okay. Well, we're going to, yeah, we're going to get it right this time. Really going to raise it to the sky People are ready to forgive a few mistakes But let's get started for the party Don't you know how long it takes This one didn't make my fantasy list, but it is a good song, and there's a real specific reason it didn't make my fantasy list, which we'll talk about when we get to that later. I think it's a, a, quite a good song, actually. The thing we always love, where Paul does like a first verse down an octave and a second verse up an octave, he kind of does that yes. in the middle of the verse this time. He just suddenly leaps up an octave in the middle. It's great. When you see it happening to you, you know. 
It's a good vocal take. The only problem I have with the song, because I really do like this track, because it's very Beatly, and he had said in interviews where he kind of was over the face. He's like, if anybody can do the Beatles, it's probably me. He said the word probably. <laughs> just, just to hedge the bet a bit. The vocal performance is great. The music is great. It's just that oh yeah oh yeah part <laughs> i was like oh okay yeah come on you could have written somebody else there he did bring george martin back out for this and george martin even said are you sure you want to use me and he's like yeah and paul there's a quote from him he says halfway through the session george leaned over to me and he said super song paul and wicks had noticed during the session that George, because he wrote the arrangement, as we just said, he wrote, Come on, people, arranged by Paul McCartney and George Martin, 30th June 1962, which he then crossed out and changed to 1992. It was like a Freudian slip for him. He went right back to the old Beatles. Days. I think that George Martin's arrangement on this, it, it is appropriately Beatles y. I think it's a little, it kind of harkens back to the song Tug of War. It's a little militaristic at the end. For the subject matter, it gets the fanfares and the drums and everything. I think this is Paul shaking off his Beatles fear of, oh, hey, you're doing Beatles stuff and kind of getting ready for Flaming Pie, which he turns in a bunch of songs that could have been written during the Beatles era. And he, and there's a couple that sort of are. And he's making straight up references to the yes, Beatles in yeah. the title of the album. Songs Flaming we Pie. were singing yeah. and Mm-hmm. All of those things. Yeah, so it was released in the UK the 22nd of February, 93, and they did put it out, I guess, on July 20th in the US, but it didn't. It did not. It did not perform at all. It reached 41 in the UK. By the way, wonderful cover art on this CD single. It's, the, it's like the collage, right? It's a collage, yeah. It's really cool. And the package is a cardboard thing. It's not like a jewel case. What's the track list? Come on, people. I can't imagine keep coming back to love and down to the river. Right. So I can't imagine that was the B-side on the 7-inch.
At the end of this, there's six seconds of silence and then a fade in of Cosmically Conscious. So we get about a minute and a half of Cosmically Conscious at the end of this album. It's in a sort of a filtered version. It doesn't sound like the actual record does. Yeah, it sounds like there's an effect on it. Yeah. Some kind of modulation on the thing. I guess we'll cover Cosmically Conscious in a few minutes as its own thing. Yes. But it's a pretty fun way to end this song, and it's not a bad way to end the album, too, since it's a lot of what the album is about is some throwbacks to the 60s and some ideas about being kind of universally you know, conscious of how you're affecting animals and yeah. the earth. So it's reasonable to end with that little coda here. The poet, Adrian, he suggested changing the future and it's coming into rushing and charging. And that feels... That's good advice. Yes, it's great advice. And that feels... That's good advice. Strong verbs. You didn't need a poet to tell you that. A goddamn sixth grade English teacher will tell you that. Strong verbs. <laughs> Not coming, charging, <laughs> you know. And that that's sort of what Cosmically Conscious feels like at the end. It's like there's this big buildup and there's this other thing that kind of just pops right back in, but... Yeah, that's that's it. That's the album. That's off the ground. That's off the ground. I like it. Good album. You're probably looking at your little meter on your iPhone or your computer or whatever means you use to listen to this. You're like, how is there so much left of this podcast then? Well, that's mm. because... <laughs> <laughs> there's another album. There's another album. So this is a situation we haven't been in to this extent since... Maybe Red Rose Speedway or Ram? Yes. Where we have this much material? There is quite a bit of material here. And that's just the album. There's also all these other little songs and things we'll get to at the end. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to cover. I mentioned earlier that I have a Japanese EMI double CD of Off the Ground, The Complete Works. That is a legit release, right? That's not a bootleg. No, that was issued in Japan and the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And okay. that, it was just all the extras, including the full version of Cosmically Conscious. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it gathers up all these B-sides we've been talking right. about and puts it on its own disc. You know, we've always wanted Paul to do this for some of his releases, and maybe he heard the fans at the time and he did it. Well, it's interesting that he did, at least it, in one form, present all the material. So... We literally have another album's worth. We're not even kidding here. I'm alone, said she. No one to phone, no one to touch me. I'm on the way, said the man in long leather coat as he started his car. Track one, I have down is Long Leather Coat, which is a, this is a barn burner. This one's great. I love this song. 
Yeah, it's another animal rights-y kind of song, but I think it's the best of the batch of the animal rights-y things. Easily. And it's a real rocker. This is the kind of rocker that rocks so hard that I don't care that it's a rocker. <laughs> That's fine. So shall I go? Yeah, it's got a good lyric. I like the story more than, you know, track two on Off the Ground, Looking for Changes. This is, there's some drama to it. You can kind of see it in your head with the fur coat and the paint and all that. And then like the bubbling synthesizers underneath what they have going on. I, I'm, I'm not really sure why this is a B-side, frankly. I would have mm. <laughs> just put this on the album. Well, this is better than Looking for Changes, right? To me, yes. it is. Easily. So it would it would fulfill the same function in terms of subject matter, but it would be a, a harder rocking song. Right. You know, it, it would fulfill the rocker function even better. It took me a while to track that one down back in the old days. For some reason, I, it wasn't showing up as often on Napster and Bearshare <laughs> as some of these <laughs> others. So it was a little ways in before I got a hold of this one, but I was really pleased when I did. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard it, I just couldn't believe how good it was. I'm like, how? What? What? This... Yeah, there's all these songs that kind of led us to doing this podcast, and this one certainly is for me. I think it's a strong track. For that matter, this whole alternate off the ground. This is a lot of why we're here. That leads us to track two on the complete works, which is Keep Coming Back to Love. So it's a co-write with Hamish Stewart. Yes. And it's also co-sung with him. What a great voice that guy has. Yeah, legitimately they are harmonizing. It's not a backup vocal. He's he's a, a key player in terms of the vocals on this one. And he sounds great, man. Hamish is a really good singer. Really, really good singer. I guess Paul figured that out pretty early on. Yeah, it's, it's a little strange that he buried this one, though. I, I may find that interesting. Well, this is a great little song. It, it's The lyrics are a little bit bland yeah. or generic, mm-hmm. but musically, this is really strong. It's got some good chord changes. It's got, we've already mentioned these great harmonies, and it's another fine band performance, too. I don't know. I don't really have many complaints about this song. This is another one of those B-sides... Where you're like, you put, you put on the second disc and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what is happening here right now? 
Now, this is one of two songs that Paul wrote with Hamish, right? The other one, Is It Raining in London? The fog is lifting, the sky is cleaning now, the sun is breaking on through. It might find me, I suppose. feel able to really comment on this song because the versions I have are so sketchy and kind of hard to decipher that I don't quite know what I, th- I think it's a good song. It seems to me that it's a great song. And yeah, we have some garbled versions. I'm not sure what happened there because they did a whole orchestral arrangement and there's even some, and, and, and the guy that did the arrangement was the gentleman that does the music for Twin Peaks. And there's this whole story where Paul was asked by the Queen to perform music to celebrate her birthday at Buckingham Palace. And she was like, I'm so sorry I can't stay. I mean, at the event. <laughs> I, I, I have to go watch Twin Peaks or something like that. Yeah, well, that's, that, that's significant because the person who arranged it is Angelo Badalamente. Yes. And he is the composer for almost all of David Lynch's work. Why don't I play a little bit of the Twin Peaks theme here? Yeah, why not? Set the mood. Funny thing is, that's more Badalamenti than we're actually going to hear on these garbled versions. <laughs> but why don't we play these garbled versions, too, and give people an idea what, what the song sounds like. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess the end of that story is that Paul, like, hit Angelo. Like, see, your show is keeping me from performing for the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. 
So these co-writes are buried, and I mean, that to me feels like a publishing thing or like a manager thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't have any information. That's a complete conjecture. That could be 100% wrong. Yeah, all we know is we don't have like a polished final take on this song. Well, when we get the archive edition for Off the Ground, maybe it'll show up. I know something you don't know. I want you to listen and attend. What about track three? Sweet, sweet memories. Mmm, I love this one, man. I couldn't stop singing this in the car for about a year. <laughs> it's like a little Beatles track. Almost. It's like a little Beatles track. It's got a cool little key, key change in the middle. By the way, what a vocal arrangement on this, huh? Great, great stuff. I really like this one. It seems like the best of like a, I don't know, catchy 64, 65 Beatles type stuff. So much of the album, the real album, is is, is a little worse than this song. You're like, yeah. well, okay, well. Like, why couldn't Biker Like an Icon been swapped out for Sweet Sweet? We'll get to that in a second, though. We'll talk about yeah, yeah. that at the end. The real magic of this is is in the next song for me i can't believe this is a b-side track six style style
Excellent. Well, that one was on my playlist right after Sweet Sweet Memories for something I just sang in the car every day for I don't know how long. What a great car song, too. Style, style. Really great. And I, I failed to mention this earlier in the podcast. Sometimes I'll do this. I'll, I'll grab an acoustic guitar, I'll sit at the piano, and I'll try to just, I'll play through the albums and try to figure out the chords or look up the chord sheets. There are a lot of rich musical ideas throughout this whole album and all the recording sessions. And these chords are complicated and they're cool and the production's cool. And his vocal, he sounds 10 years younger than he is in the vocal. There may be some problems with the lyrics if you're like a McCartney purist. She wouldn't show her underclothes? Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, there's there's a couple. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I kind of take all that in stride. I also know that the song's about Linda... And I kind of think it's all, it's all very personal, you know? So maybe for that reason, it was relegated to the B-side. But it's, and boy, what a, what a great production. It's a very modern rock production, which I like a lot. Not only does it have the cool chords, but I like this production style with these really clean, compressed guitars. Now, this next track is one that has grown on me and kind of risen in the ranks. I Can't Imagine, which is the Come On People B-side that we just mentioned. It also, just just very briefly, it includes a little brief moment from an unreleased song called On a Pedestal that was written in France on the same trip that inspired I Owe It All to You. I knew a bunch of stuff happened on that trip. I knew Hmm. it. But mm. so that's that's in there near the end. All those little like acoustic like bits he does. What do you think about? I can't imagine. This was another one that the first time I heard it, the first twenty seconds of the song, I was in. It's it's a great uh, chromatic Beatles kind of chord progression there at the beginning of the verse that I like a lot. Again, his voice sounds like early eighties. He's clear as a bell here. Sounds great. I love, as I said before, songs that have a verse and chorus in different keys, which this one does. This one kind of falls nicely into the chorus key, which is really cool. By the way, listen to all this enthusiasm from us compared to what it was like when we were going through the album. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those old two chunk, chunks of coal actually like something after all. Wow. <laughs> For me to say what I'm about to say could take a bit of courage. I can summon up enough for this and maybe more
That's a very good song. It's again, it's like, what is that? Four or five of these where you're just like, whoa, mm-hmm. that was really good. I, I can't believe it. Yeah. You know, there's a few more on this list that, I mean, I don't think we've even really gotten to the top of the heap. And this, well, maybe <laughs> that's up to you to decide. But the next track is the full version of Cosmically Conscious. is not enough of a song for me i mean it's just the chorus and the it's a joy joy or such a joy it's a joy, joy. It's, that's it a little uh what is that a everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey reference yeah could be Well, it was apparently written in 1968 in India on that trip. Mm-hmm. They wrote all the things for the White Album for. Right. And it, it has that kind of mentality, the song, late 60s cosmic consciousness. This is not a favorite for me. He actually played it. There's that David Lynch transcendental meditation event in New York a few years back, and he played the song with Ringo. So there's a bit of a circle closing. You know, the Beatles may not have done it originally, but half of them did. Mm-hmm. 40 or 50 years later. I think this is a perfect thing to stick at the end of the album after Come On People. Like I think what he did with it is is good. Cosmically conscious. Yeah, I guess it's like a hip sort of idea. You know, he's right what he was saying in a lot of the interviews that in the early 90s, there were some 60s cultural trends kind of coming back. I remember it well because I was in college and not just college, art school. There were granola people everywhere. You know, there was this kind of resurgence of of 60s ethos, I guess, in the early 90s. And so he's right about that. And he he mentions that in a lot of his interviews for Off the Ground. And I guess it makes sense to, to pull up this song in light of that. Yeah, that's a good point. Oasis and all those things were happening at the time. Tie dye came back for a while. You know, stuff like that was happening in At least it was at art school. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't happening everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, probably not everywhere. (laughs) Okay, but even so.
So, moving on to Kicked Around No More. Oh, I love this one. Very beautiful chorus. The way the chorus breaks, so there's a kind of um, like steady churning quality to the verse, and then when it kind of breaks into the chorus, it's really like a relief, kind of. It's really beautiful. Yeah, this is a cool song, and the lyrics are a little uncharacteristic for Paul. wonder where he's getting that from. Is it just a character he made up, or is he thinking about something? I think he's been kicked around by the press for the past mm. entire time of his life. <laughs> At least after the Beatles. My life could be so sweet, I can't remember when I started running. Yeah. Big Boys Bickering. Another gem. Yeah, that one, this is without a doubt, without a, even a question in my mind, should have been on the album. And maybe it's the, because it was apparently banned on the radio. So the, the song comes from Paul's first time back in Japan since 1980, which happened in 1990. And he this quote is like, it was kind of exorcism. The first few nights we had strange dreams and screaming headaches. So, you know, Paul had been back to Japan and he had written this somewhere in this trip and there's like a release for him and they didn't play it live because it was, they, they wouldn't play it on the radio. It's a really good protest song, you know, big boys bickering, fucking it up for everyone. Yeah, I, I like it. And by the way, the instrumentation on this with the acoustic guitars and the accordion. There's actually a little anecdote about that where Wicks plays a bit of that on the accordion on one of those live albums. And then Paul goes, not tonight. <laughs> so they, he like teased it. No, not didn't happen.
Down to the river. Mm-hmm. Same for me as Cosmically Conscious. It's just not enough of a song. Yeah, I don't love it. I like the feel of it. Like when it first starts, I'm, I always feel optimistic, but then I realize it's not going anywhere. It is not going it's... anywhere. <laughs> you have just reached the climax in the first three seconds. <laughs> and speaking of three seconds, the track 12, Soggy Noodle, which we discussed before, is a 28-second track. It's just the opening to the off-the-ground video. So if you want to, for completion's sake, I guess... that record out what a treat huh i can't wow if you guys have not heard that and we hope some of you have not go find the complete works you can you can find them on ebay or you can you can track all these songs down they're out you can still get all these cd singles and i'm pretty sure you can get that japanese complete works too yeah that is uh that is a nice thing but we guess what guys we are not done (laughs) we have another list of songs yeah we discussed is it raining in London? You know, I, I don't think there's much more to say there. There's another couple of songs that are of that quality that I think we could talk about. And then I'll just do what I've been doing, reading my lists for people to, to go discover. So there's a song called In Liverpool. He's at Lippa and he's in the auditorium and he's singing this song. And it was one of the songs on the demo list, the big bag of demos that he brought in. And who knows if there's a version of it or not. It's okay. I understand why they didn't record it. But it, it it's worth it if you're a McCartney fan to check out. So maybe we can just play some of it. Sure thing. Spent my early life in Liverpool Something I'm not likely to forget No, 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 people blend the places Faces that I know but never met. Mm-hmm. Upstairs on the bus sits a man. He's talking to himself, or so it seems. Listing names of old comedians and laughing at them. The beer at where the speakers meet Each of them is own imagined crowd Giving us his version of the book God has written I spent my early life in Liverpool So that's in Liverpool what it is worth there is a song called cello in the ruins that was presented as a demo (laughs) got me on that one yeah and this one was later recorded with liam gallagher and paul weller but is still in the vaults it's never been released so from there a fine day that ring anything for you yes i've heard a fine day it's an improvisation from a live sound check in east that's right rutherford new jersey it could have been made into a whole song that's from june 11th 1993 
But I remember there not being much to it. There is not much to it. Isn't he just doodling during a sound check? Yeah, it's it's a doodle. Yeah. And and for those of us that are songwriters out there, like you sit down at a piano, you you throw some words and some melodies out there, and that doesn't necessarily mean you've written a song. You have fooled around a bit, but you have an idea. Yes, you have an idea. He did not develop this idea, so maybe you know there's something to say about that. There's another one exactly like that called Hotel in Bindorum from May 26, 93. Exact same thing, except done in Boulder, Colorado. Sources say this is inspired by a holiday in 1972. I don't know if that's real or not. So there's another track called If You Say So, which was submitted as a demo. No one's heard it. Julian Mendelssohn was given it. I don't know. I've, I haven't heard it. I would love to hear that one one day. There weren't enough songs. I have just another track list of songs that either were recorded at the Root Studios, the Mill Sessions, that it was a note made to them, or, you know, the, things have leaked out. Paul plays a lot of these unreleased songs at, during sound checks, like over the PA. So this is the list. A Quiet Moment, Incredible Thing, Jacket in Clubland, maybe a reference to Elvis Costello, Little Daisy Root, Magic Lamp, On a Pedestal, which we mentioned earlier, Pull Away, Sexual Ealing, E-A-L-I-N-G, Someone Rocking My, and then dot, 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 (laughs) Wedding Invitation, Wish You Were Mine, which I think is MPL copywriting 20 fine fingers or trying to just reserve the title. Oh, okay. And then a song called You're Shaking, and then The Hand in a parenthetical note. I do actually have a copy of Little Daisy Root. Well, then why don't you play it for the kind folks listening in? I can legitimately say that that's the first time I've heard that song. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) Okay. So this album, there's a few quotes. Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune, February 5th, 93. McCartney has made a career out of making everything seem easy, sometimes too easy. 
but his cutie pie propensities are now balanced by emotional grit. Positive. Positive review. Steve Hotchman from the LA Times, February 7th, 93. There's nothing any self-respecting Beatlemaniac would love more than to announce the artistic renaissance of James Paul McCartney. Unfortunately, this isn't it. <laughs> so, pretty harsh LA guy. As, as if it were so different or inferior to Flowers. Yeah. yeah. It, it's basically the same album, but whatever. Alan Cousin, 214.93 in the New York Times. It's no secret that he, Paul, was disappointed by the failure of his last studio outing, Flowers in the Dirt, in 1989. <laughs> yeah, New York. <laughs> to reach the top of the charts despite critical enthusiasm and a world tour that broke attendance records. Many of his fans wanted only to bask in Beatles and Wings hits that were hardly tempted by the new material. This album's defect is McCartney's lazy lyric writing. Wonderful imagery often melts into syrup. Like I owe it all to you. Exactly. And that's one he mentions as well as Wine Dark, Open Sea. Two more, just two more. Rolling Stones Park Putterbaugh, February 18th, 93. Times have changed. Attention spans have shortened owing to video overexposure. Rigid radio formats, the corporate trivialization of rock's mission and the sheer accumulated mass of music old and new being thrust at listeners what a what a what a quote this guy and this is pre-internet pre-internet 93 i hope this guy survived when the internet came along yeah these days the sales go to the likes of michael bolton garth brooks boys to men and chris cross while living legends like McCartney, Jagger, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, and arguably even Bruce Springsteen are consigned to an elder rocker's Valhalla, where they bask in critical favor and do good tour business while watching their new work hobble and fall off the charts. What a quote from that guy. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's how it goes. Yes. And the last one is from our friend at allmusic.com, Stephen Thomas Erlewine. It's clean and direct, where many of his solo albums are diffuse and meandering, and it's serious-minded, where many rely on cutesiness. But overall, Off the Ground feels less than the sum of its parts, possibly because the seriousness is too studied, perhaps because the approach is a bit too stodgy. Hmm. Some really some mixed reviews, and, and maybe this is why all those CDs were in those stores. It, di- it, it didn't get that great a press. It peaked at number 17 on the Billboard 200. That's in the U.S. And... It you know it got mixed reviews, but it it, it did numbers. It sold mm-hmm. a lot of copies. It went gold and platinum. You know nearly everywhere: gold in the U.S., silver in the U.K., Switzerland gold, Japan gold, France, Canada, Austria, Australia gold, Germany and Spain platinum. Probably off the help of hope of deliverance. Right. I walked into researching this album 
liking it far less than Flowers in the Dirt. And I think it is as strong of an album. It's a fine album. Totally with you on that. I think it's, I like the production on Off the Ground quite a bit more than the production on Flowers. Okay. All that syrupy 80s, just slathering on the reverb and synthesizers stuff on Flowers, it drives me crazy. And it's just not present on this album, none of that kind of production. You've got these solid live in the studio band performances at the core of all of it. It's, how would I say, it's cleanly produced, as Earl Wine said, it's quite cleanly produced, but it's not sterile or overproduced or 80s sounding. So again, it's hard for me to sometimes entirely separate the album from the pile of stuff because I have so much enthusiasm for this pile of stuff. Yes. And in fact, the album is a flawed sequence of tracks from that pile. So let's just say the off the ground sessions, this is excellent. Yeah. Taken as a whole, this is a, such a good pile of material. Starting with when Elvis Costello shows up until he departs, it's a lot of great material. It's so much good music to go through. And it's it's a really a treasure trove and a treat if you take the time to dig in. This is another reason why we did this podcast. There's so many of these moments. Just dig in a little deeper. The single, that's okay, but then there's so, so much more. The pile Chris is talking about. It's very good. I agree completely with you. Five, four, three, two, one, ignition. Paul McCartney is off the ground. The Ground, the new album, out now. That wraps up Off the Ground. Should we discuss briefly our fantasy lists? Well, you better believe it. This I'm so excited <laughs> for this. I've been waiting the whole episode. Here would be my track order. A-side. Okay. Off the Ground. Mm-hmm. Long Leather Coat. Ooh. Hope of Deliverance. Kicked Around No More. Mistress and Maid. I can't imagine. Side one. I got no problems with that. That's excellent. Side two kicks off hard with style, style. Then keep coming back to love. Sweet, sweet memories. Peace in the neighborhood. Big boys bickering. And I'm ending mine with the lovers that never were. Nice. In hopefully a different version. (laughs) Because I think it's so, it'd be such a dark, plaintive way to end an album. Let me say one more thing about my fantasy list. My insistence on including The Lovers That Never Were as the final track made it impossible for me to include Come On People because there's no place else to put Come On People. But I do want to say I like Come On People. And if it weren't for that sequencing choice of mine, I might have included that as well. Anyway, my little track list here comes to 51 minutes. And I want to point out that of these 12 songs, seven are not on Off the Ground. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's an excellent album. I actually listen to yours a bunch and I have a hard time. It's like we have the official, we have your version, and then I'll say, say mine in a second. I could go back and forth between three of them. It's like a whole nother world that you can enter into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. So I guess I'll read mine now, which is different than Chris's. Well, I mean, you probably can already guess what's on mine. So Off the Ground, Hope of Deliverance, Lovers That Never Were, Mistress and Maid, Sweet, Sweet Memories, and then Golden Earth Girl closes side A. Okay. 
flip it over. I agree with you on style, style. I actually took that from you. Sorry about that. It's what an opener to the B-side of an album. Yeah, right? Really good. Long leather coat, big boys bickering, kicked around, no more, get out of my way, and then I left. Come on, people in there. Is Cosmically Conscious on there? I don't care either way, I guess. My album is 51 minutes and 18 seconds, so very close. Okay. I think our our lists are pretty similar, and I don't have any huge problems with your choices there, except maybe Golden Earth Girl. Hmm. <laughs> I think largely because the vocal, even more than the lyrics, the vocal drives me crazy on that. Well, that's what this podcast is for. Hey, you know what, guys and gals listening? Send us your playlist, and what do you think? Find this stuff, go through it, send us a note, post it on the Facebook wall. We really want to hear what you say because we really value your opinions and it's so exciting to talk with all of you. So thank you for that. Okay. We have kind of a special episode for you next time. Yes. So why don't we leave you with a little hint of what that will be about? Please do. When I love, I get a Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady. Take it away. The complete Paul McCartney archive podcast is powered by Pippa.